0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trade's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, we've got COP28 in Dubai just wrapped, and as always, the complexity and the politics of decarbonisation are running pretty hot at the moment. But I think it's worth noting for investors, this trend just isn't going away. The macro environment's really complex. It's hard to kind of pick a path for many investors, but there are some things that are not changing and they are increasingly interesting, I think. What's most fascinating is the scale of change and the investment that is required to put the planet on a more sustainable footing. And there are so many opportunities for investors to be part of that. To think about some of those opportunities, I'm joined by Tim Gerard, Portfolio with Janice Henderson. Tim, thanks so much for joining
0: me. Gemma, thanks a lot for uh, the opportunity to talk about resources and where resources fits into decarbonisation and how our clients can make money out of decarbonisation.
1: Yeah, that's Everyone always wants to hear about that bit—the making money component. So before we came on out, I have to ask this question now because you had this fantastic story. And generally, anyone in the resources space will talk about how they became a mining engineer and then they got interested in the finance side and so on. Yours is better. I like it. Can you tell us that one?
0: Oh, okay, I mean it is a little bit of a funny story. I come from New Zealand, down the very bottom, Invercargill. I went to boarding school in Oamaru, Waitaki Boys. For some reason perhaps year-old empire school, for some reason, it had a history of digging tunnels. <laughs> so we spent many years at the school as boarders digging quite substantial tunnels from one dormitory to the next. And I think that got me interested in geology. I went to university at Otago University, did mining engineering, had a year off where I travelled the world overland, basically, to Edinburgh, came back, finished the mining engineering, and then did an accounting degree. So those two things, mining engineering and accounting, set me up well to try and figure out what's going on in resources.
1: But you had a lot of early experience in making sure tunnels don't collapse on top of you as yes. you're digging them out, which is good. It's important important for miners to have that kind of... It
0: is. You've got to
1: know that early. You've got to get it locked in. So, so much to talk about. You've talked about your background and so perhaps this will come as less a surprise to people, but you talk about your fund as a resources fund first and foremost. When we talk about decarbonisation, everyone gets a bit of a greeny thing in mind. Mm-hmm. But talk about the resources component of it and why you think about it that way.
0: Look, when you think about resources, I think it's best to think about it, at least from our point of view, it's a very broad definition of resources. And when you think resources, you've got to step back and think about humanity. You've got to think about shelter for people. You've got to think about food, food security. You've got to think about warmth, which is energy. Um, All of those things are natural resources. And when you think about natural resources in the context of Maybe there's 9 or 10 billion people in the world by 2050. Um, where are they going to get the wherewithal to survive? And then you've got China, $1.4 billion people, that's changed the equation for the demand for resources. 50% of most resources are now demanded by the Chinese. And then you've got industrialisation sweeping the world and urbanisation. And now we haven't even talked about 1.4 billion people in India. So resources, the broad definition, and so we think of it as metals and mining, think of it as energy, and think of it as agriculture. But coming back to each one of those a little bit, metals and mining in Australia, it used to be, believe it or not, lead and zinc 50 years ago. And then the lead zinc kind of morphed into iron ore and also coke and coal. These are massive earners for Australia. And now it's sort of morphing a little bit into lithium. Lithium's very important. And when you look at energy, well, you think oil and gas. That's fine. That's still important. Um, But it's kind of morphed into LNG exports. Massively important. We used to be massive exporters of uranium. Uranium's kind of been, and now it might be coming back again and now on top of all that we've got the new part which is renewables and then so we've got metals and mining in our resource funds we've got energy and now we come to agriculture because basically where's the food going to come from as the arable land gets smaller and smaller deforestation is important to stop if you want to decarbonize Um, And you look at things like fertilisers and you look at things like precision agriculture. So I hope I've kind of demonstrated a little bit when we think resources, we think the broad brush.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible range of things to consider. And that point you make about how you provide for such an extraordinarily huge population Mm. that is taking up more and more of the surface area of the planet – and so you're trying to provide for them with fewer resources in this yeah. environment. It's quite fascinating. Fewer, if you have...
0: fewer resources and more efficiently applied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. It's, uh, and you know, a lot of people get a little bit sad and think that they have to give up their they're big cars mostly (laughs) that seems to be mostly what people get concerned about when you look at it as a much a much broader issue how do you think about those things is there something just to start us off that excites you most about a lower carbon future or maybe i'm using the wrong terminology is it not lower carbon but just kind of keeping a lid on where we are now
0: oh no it's not keeping a lid on where we are now it's pushing down on the lid with all our might and it might take a long long time but the push has started um what is exciting, what gets us excited about decarbonisation, I suppose, is the scale. It, you imagine the world morally—you you wouldn't think it from COP28. You'd think that everyone's in disagreement about everything. But the way I think about it, COP28, is an, it's incredible about how much broad agreement there is on many things. And even if they don't get 100% of what everyone wants, there is a move towards the right outcome. Now, what's exciting about that is the scale the scale of the opportunity is is what's exciting and the fact that the genie is out of the bottle. It's not like decarbonisation is an if anymore, it's all about when. And so the excitement is, unfortunately I like to say it's not necessarily Australia, the excitement for us is global because... If you want to invest in the hydrogen economy in Australia, it's it's just not possible. But when you look at America in terms of excitement, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Jobs Act, all that adds up about to a trillion dollars of money that's been spent now. And all of that has been spent. If you're in America and reshoring, what have you got, data centers, warehouses, New chip factories, new renewable investments. Billions are spent right now in America. Now, that's opportunity. America might consume 1.2 million tonnes of copper now. Well, it's not going to be long before that's 2 million tonnes of copper. Where's that copper going to come from? It's, it's debatable. America's leading the way in hydrogen. And then you come to China, and I'm just trying to give you an example. Jim, of, of the scale of the opportunity, China's leading the way in EVs, electric vehicles. They need a lot of lithium. They need a lot of good quality steel or aluminium, and they need a lot of copper. And these opportunities are happening worldwide, whereas the previous boom was all about China. Now it's about China maintaining the status quo and the rest of the world decarbonising mind you, China's decarbonising too. But we've got this added demand on top of all that demand I talked about before that comes from industrialisation and urbanisation.
1: It's so fascinating. And when you talk about the scale, it gets really exciting. There's not a lot of things where you can absolutely see it coming. Uh, That's That's right. That's right. You know, but also in so many different ways. Now, you've mentioned lithium multiple times and I know everybody listening will be pricking up their ears because it's it's been super hot sector on the NAB trade platform for yeah. a couple of years now. Some of our guys got in super early, uh, some not so much, but everyone's enjoyed having a bit of a play in the lithium space. Thoughts on that because everyone will be paying attention. Oh,
0: oh look, I think on lithium, I'm, it would be nice if I could say, it, oh, you know, We thought this was going to happen, this current collapse, (laughs) and we thought it was going to happen right now, but but we have been a little bit surprised at the extent that the prices have come off. Interesting. Um, But to put that in context, uh, if you have a lithium carbonate, say, which is a base product, and four or five years ago, that might have been $8,000 a tonne. And just to put that into context, it went to... 80,000. And then we're all wondering, well, we know 80,000 stupid, <laughs> but, but is 25 or 30 the right price? Mm. And people are trying to get their head around that. But of course, the right price can be anything if the demand is not there right now. And what's happened over the last year, EVs, uh, you know, maybe global growth hasn't been as strong as expected in general. That In general, that kind of in, impacted the the EV market, although the penetration rates are still high. But the momentum has lost a little bit. Um, at the same time, the price of electric cars is coming down. And there's a lot of competition. And at the same time, though, there is plenty of short-term lithium available. And, and the, the supply chain is chock-a-block, it's full up. Mm. And so the the guys making the batteries, they don't need the supplies that they had before. In fact as they did reverse, they've got to work the supplies down. And so while well, the supply chain has to readjust, it could take three months, but it could take six or it could take a year. Um, Pilbara Mining has recently been to China and all their clients are telling themselves it'll be at least six months and possibly a year before the supply chain adjusts. So we could find that the um, the prices continue to fall, but it's a little bit like, I would say, two steps forward, one step back. It's, it's not going to go up in a straight line. A couple of years ago, the lithium demand was... Um, say 300,000 tonnes a year. Now it might be 1.3 million tonnes a year because of the revolution in EVs. But by 2030, it could be 4.3 million tonnes. And the long-term deficit is still in place. But to answer your question, do we like lithium? We do, but more a medium term and just let the dust settle over the next three or six months.
1: I mean, that is the nature of materials, right? Yeah, <laughs> everyone does. gets really excited, yeah. brings on tons of supply, the price yeah, comes right yeah, back, then yeah, we all kind of yeah. let it play out, and then we start yeah. again. it's um it's fun if you're into that kind of
0: thing. Jim, um, but one thing I didn't mention i, I was a, a bit remiss, but when we talked about the what's exciting about decarbonisation, I kind of mentioned the fact you know copper was important, America is important, China is important. But the thing that A lot of people gloss over, and your listeners might be interested in, if you want to decarbonise, there's two examples of the way in which you can do it. Um, You want to use more energy more efficiently. The less energy you use in a high-carbon environment, then the less emissions. So we like companies that have high-grade iron ore to make into good quality steel because that high grade of iron ore means less energy needs to be consumed. And if the country is a high carbon energy producer, then you're being more efficient. So that's one tangential way, because it's not all about just windmills and solar. It's mm-hmm. all sorts of ways to decarbonize. And the other way that I think we all forget about, maybe some of your listeners not so much, but if you recycle, you recycle a tonne of steel... Recycle a ton of aluminium or your aluminium cans, uh, recycle the old cardboard cartons. Basically, the carbon emitted from that recycled process to produce your original good again is a quarter of what it was to originally produce it. So we like, we're always on the lookout in our funds. It's not just a matter of mining copper, but who's good at recycling copper and aluminium? So we want it both ways because we're always looking for value between those extremes.
1: That's really interesting. It leads straight into my next question, right. which is very, very helpful. <laughs> we, you've mentioned copper multiple times as being critical, and there is this constant talk about critical materials, critical yes. minerals that are yeah. going into this process. Is copper your preferred pick? Are there other things that you think are more sexy and exciting, have better scale, better scope?
0: Oh, look, we've got to be careful about what we pick. Part of the portfolio is we, we pick a few lots of things because we know often you, you, you pick something in theory and you might get it wrong. So, so the picking is careful. We've got to use a lot of judgment not to get carried away. And on that, I'll answer your question in a second, but we've also, in the same kind of vein, we've got to be careful to say, well, we're pretty sure that the copper price is going to go from A to B because what we want to do is find a good copper company that is value even at a low copper price or a copper price that doesn't move. So that's a way of helping us de-risk is not to continually look for the upside story. Now, now having said that, though, if you force me into a corner... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, And I've already said that lithium is a little bit more of a medium-term recovery story. When you look at copper... To be honest, it's hard not to be wildly excited. Yeah, right. Wildly excited. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. You might be able to deliver a lithium mine of five or six years. The, the scale's relatively modest. Often they can be um, not burdened by big infrastructure challenges. So lithium mine you can get going five or six years' time. A copper mine, it could be 10 to 15 years. And when you look at Goldman Sachs, but typical brokers, uh, they they would have said, and, and I'm not saying that disparagingly, uh, <laughs> a, a typical broker, and we mm-hmm. agree with him, you probably need an extra 4 million tons a year of copper by 2030. There's only 23 million tons a year of copper produced. So where's that 4 million tons going to come from when it takes 10 years to get a new copper mine going? And now, some manufacturers or consumers of copper will say, oh, we've come up with a, a good new way to, to use less copper in our product. That's called thrifting. Mm-hmm. Or some guys, if the copper price goes up, it makes it more economic to go out to Goldburn and get the strap and bring it back to Sydney. If the price doesn't go up, then you can barely get to Wollongong. So very important to recycle Very important for thrifting, but it's not going to be enough. And so the question is, we talked about lithium, how the price went from $8,000 to $80,000 because there was no supply. Uh, You talked about iron ore prior to the China reset, used to be $30 a tonne, went to $200 because there was not enough supply. Now, copper is currently $350 or $4 a pound. Um, If there's no supply... Well, the price will go where it goes for the marginal producer to buy the ton he needs. It could go four, five, six times higher. And so we're wildly interested. But it's even more complicated than that. Your investors can't really invest in Australia. BHP's taken taken out Oz Minerals couple of other smaller copper companies. But the only way really an investor here can get hold of copper in Australia is through BHP or Rio. And it might be 20% of their revenue or their earnings, whatever. And they probably
1: already on BHP and
0: Rio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so very important, there's lots of global opportunities our funds, I haven't mentioned this before, we're not an Australian fund investing in Australian. We're global investors. We find the best copper globally to put in those funds. And then I think the other thing, just while we're on copper, um, there's probably going to be a big fight, a big scramble for copper resources. China is less concerned about what they pay for something. They're more concerned about the security supply kind of an east versus a west thing, uh, and then big companies are going to want to tidy up minnows. So you mentioned
1: nuclear earlier, and this is such a controversial topic, and people have very strong views one way or the other. I am I feel not particularly well-informed about it, to be honest. Mm. So where are you on nuclear? What are your thoughts? Is uranium a great place to be? It's another question we get all the time.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, we mentioned... Um, copper is a great place to be. And I think actually uranium is just the same. Um, uranium is a fantastic place to be for a couple of reasons, um, but it all relates to decarbonisation. And, and the European Union, who have been kind of anti-uranium, you know, more or less for a long time, they came out a couple of years ago in in their um, what's called like a green taxonomy. They They had to define what kind of products or commodities to incentivize to help decarbonize. And um, lo and behold they said, look uh, you know this sounds a bit weird, but you nuclear is important. We're not going to decarbonize by 2050 without the help of nuclear. And that was the European Union saying that. Now at the same time America had its own reasons for being positive um, nuclear. And then uh, the war in the Ukraine uh, meant there's been a split between nuclear. It's kind of a split between China and Russia uh, and the supply chains. And now the West wants to guard its own supply chains. It doesn't want to be beholden to Russia or Ukraine, for that matter. Learned um, that the hard way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, and then on top of that, there haven't been any uranium mines um, built for years because the uranium price hasn't incentivized it. Now the uranium price has gone from a couple of years ago, you know, $20 a tonne to 30 to 40 It's currently sitting at 70 and 80 It's getting to the stage where the utilities know they have to buy uranium. They're a bit alarmed about where it's going to come from, and they've got to buy it from the west. And we've identified four or five fantastic companies that have already done well and might make up, you know, 5 or 10% of the portfolio because we agree we're not going to decarbonise unless we have nuclear. Now, Australia's caught in a bit of a, a tricky patch because of labour policy and, and it's almost ingrained in, in part of Australia's DNA not to have nuclear. But the, the rest of the world, not completely, but the rest of the world's more or less said we need to triple nuclear by 2050, so Australia's the one looking a bit stupid at the moment.
1: Yeah, interesting. It's um, it's such a controversial topic, as yeah. you say, but it does feel slowly like the reservations that were so heightened, particularly after Fukushima when everyone got a yeah. nasty shock that these yes. things can still happen, are just dissipating quite rapidly as we all go, do you yeah. know what? Probably need it anyway. It's yeah. just a risk we're going to have to take.
0: And technology does change Um the, the politicians will say, well, look, well, this technology is never going mm. to happen. It's never going to be cheap enough. But frankly, uh, uh, the conservative side of politics said the same thing about solar mm. and, and renewables in 1955. Mm. And things change. And Here think, we are with everyone think, yeah. with a couple
1: of panels on the roof and we're That's good right. to go. That's right. So one thing you've mentioned, which a lot of people are not naturally applying to a natural resources portfolio. Yes, You've yes. talked about agriculture uh, and I've mentioned many times on this podcast that that's the field my father works in oh, okay. uh, as a scientist yes. and the challenge that he has always been presented with in his work is how do you feed a dramatically larger population yes. Yes. with no greater natural resources than currently exist and far less intensity if at all possible, right? Yes. That's the challenge yes. for the scientists. Yes. How do you think about that as an investor?
0: Look, we um, we have to be adaptable. The science not the science so much changes, but the the technology changes, um, and expectations change. Um, but but you come back to something very basic, like one of the biggest inputs into food security is growing crops keeping the yields up, mm. um, if you didn't apply fertilizer and the crops that we grow would, what they say, they mine they mine the nutrients. Mm. And if the natural nutrients are not replaced, um, then the yield goes down. Um, but the yields over the last 20 years have been steadily rising. They might have plateaued a little bit now. but But that's the way the world gets more food by uh, despite not increasing the amount of arable land. So it's being driven by yield. But that's kind of plateauing. And also some of that yield... Um Uh, It hasn't always been wise application of fertiliser. A lot of nitrogen gets wasted. It gets leached into the soil. It causes all sorts of problems. Same with phosphate. So if nitrogen's overapplied, it's a big problem and it's not helping the yield. On the other hand, things like phosphate and potash over the last couple of years, they haven't been applied enough. And the yields have suffered because of that. So we're aware of fertilizer companies might be bombed out at the moment, but they're critical and we think there's a role to play. But having said that, if we want to make money from decarbonization, we don't want to buy fertilizer companies that are going to get penalized with a carbon tax if they are using huge amounts of gas Mm. uh, to make their products. So we're on the lookout for some companies that have almost more like organic fertilisers or companies that have programs for farmers to help them apply precision agriculture. So only that five metre patch on the field gets the fertiliser if it's required. If it's not required, go to the next five metres. So all of that's really important. And then that's like just the start because then that food has to be traded around the world. It has to be stored in silos. It has to go in ships. It has to get somewhere where it's needed. All of that's an opportunity as well. Um, so agriculture, and then we'd look at forestry as well. we look at paper as well. Um, so there's a broad definition of agriculture. Uh, and then we'd look at some companies like John Deere. You, you know, you, you've got automation in agriculture now the tractors set the computer from your kitchen table and it'll do the paddock for you uh, all of that's a reality and while it's doing the paddock it might measure the soil carbon perhaps and then that's another that's another thing for your father and the scientists to try and figure out how much carbon does soil sequest and there's a lot of debate about that
1: so, again, you lead beautifully into my next question, which is the carbon capture and storage. Yes. Which is something you've alluded to, and I find this, again, we talk about uranium and about nuclear, so controversial, but becoming less so perhaps. Yeah. And carbon capture and storage feels like a similar topic where yes. there appears to be some gaming of the system, but, again, huge opportunities to do yeah. it well. How, yeah. do you, how do you think about that? Can you, can you invest in that? Can you find a way to do it well?
0: I think we can find a way to do it well. Um, Carbon capture again—it's it's kind of a little bit like what renewables might have been like in the '50s, and it's easy to say carbon capture doesn't work. And it's true to say that over the last ten or fifteen years, there's been, you know, five or ten R&D projects that haven't worked. They've been tend to apply to thermal coal. Power stations where where the carbon being admitted, the carbon dioxide being admitted is very diluted and it's hard to capture and expensive to capture. BHP put a good slide out a couple of years when they said the sorts of things that are going to need to be done to decarbonise include carbon capture and storage, CCS. And they said, look, currently we've got about 20 in the world. I think they said we're going to need 10,000. Now, yeah, wow. that's a hypothetical thing. But our view is carbon and storage is real. Hydrogen is tied up with that. But when you, when a country like Saudi Arabia or America, gas is so plentiful, they recover the um, hydrogen from the gas, they take the polluting CO2, they collect it, put it in a pipeline, put it couple of miles underground and and so it's quite controversial it's going to work there's companies in america already doing it successfully um america gets incentivized for every ton of carbon captured american government will give his 85 dollars of tax credit and it doesn't cost anywhere near $85 to do it. So that's going to kickstart that industry there, and we're still mucking around here saying, oh, I don't know if we'd do it. But our view is, when we talk energy transition, surprise, surprise, it's a transition. A transition needs coal, gets transitioned to gas. If we're going to use gas, let's take the carbon out of the process, and sometimes you can take 95% out of the carbon out. And then Korea and Japan saying, give me that gas. It's called blue gas. It's not green. It's not produced from renewables. Mm. It's, it's produced by storing the carbon. Um, so give me the blue gas. I'm going to put that in our coal-fired stations as a blend. And it's going to mean that on average, my carbon emissions will come down. That's a laid down Mazier, It's going to happen. It's so
1: fascinating. I really enjoyed this conversation because it's just so many things, right? Mm. Such a range of opportunities. And you don't say that in a lot of things. You've got got your bet and you're going to go after it. A lot of people like a bet in one sector or two sectors, but this feels extensive.
0: Can I say something about that? Because I think that's one of the... Weaknesses in our product, and I don't say that lightly.
1: <laughs> well, I think you're the first person who's ever said, here's well, the weakness in my product. Well, the
0: weakness is that people associate resources with volatility. I'm not going to use the word gambling, but they, they associate it with a big win. Mm. Um, and if people are after a big win, well, give me an ETF on lithium, give me an ETF on copper, I want the ETF that gives me the big win. That's fine for some people. But our view is, give me a portfolio of options that at various times will do a lot better than other times. Won't blow you up. You'll get a good steady return over 10 or 12 years that will be as good as the MISCI return. It'll just occur at a different time. But we're offering the investors a package of sensible measures to decarbonise that will help you make money when the rest of your portfolio mightn't be making returns at the same time. It's
1: an interesting one. You know, this is something a lot of people want to participate in. We see it in the way that people invest. Certainly, lithium was a great example. And whether they were doing it because they just thought the sector was hot or because they have a view on anything else, I don't know. But it's certainly – people do want to participate. Also, Mm. it's very clear from investors they're concerned about the macro outlook and it's challenging. One last question then. In a macro environment like this, and you've talked about the sheer volume of investment that's Mm. going toward this, Mm. when you look at – I love the Inflation Reduction Act. I love it. It's got (laughs) nothing to do with inflation (laughs) reduction. It's just a ton of money for renewables and God knows what else. It's it's Mm. hilarious how it was named. But let's say the amount of investment that is coming from the Mm. US but also, as you say, from China and so on, do you think that's at risk in any way – In the current macro environment, if everything goes to hell in a handbasket next year with, and it might be this year, but (laughs) (laughs) but anytime soon, uh, are you concerned about the level of investment contracting or do you think these things are going to play out one way or the other and maybe the timing changes marginally?
0: Uh, Look, I think we can always have plenty of reasons to be concerned but as I said before, the genie is out of the bottle, that um, there's a sense of urgency about decarbonising. And so different countries will approach it in different ways. And we've had big cost blowouts in in renewables um, because of inflation. Uh, And contracts have had to be renegotiated. I think that's going to happen time and time again. It's not going to be a straight line. But if the resolve of the world is to reduce carbon then surprisingly enough, it might be one of the last things that gets cut. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, there's all sorts of other important things and there's been a lot of money spent over the last decade. So I'm not saying there may not be changes ahead. uh, If the Democrats uh, lose the elections in America, maybe the Republicans have a different view on some of the Inflation Reduction Act. On the other hand, a lot of the Inflation Reduction Act is good for red states Mm. because a lot of money has been spent in the red states like Texas. Mm. So it's not a foregone conclusion that that would get axed at all. So, look, we can always be worried about the macro. There's always plenty to worry about. And if anything, I think we would say now everyone's so worried about everything that now's a good time to be adding rather than reducing.
1: Tim Tell us about where to find out more. You guys publish a lot and you put a lot of thoughts out into the world, which I think are really useful for people. Where do people go to learn a bit more about what you're doing?
0: I, I think it's it's probably a good start is, is to – to go straight to Amy Barron <laughs> No, but you could certainly... There actually are
1: a lot of advisors who listen to this and they will probably know Amy uh, who is listening right now so you can call Amy but if you're not going to call no, Amy directly uh, look, where we, else might you uh,
0: go? No, no, I, I, we have a very good um, web, Janice Henderson webpage we have a lot of information there on shared knowledge. I would say that would be the best place to start and by the way we, we have a couple of products in our resources portfolio. One is an ETF mm. and so the companies in that ETF are public. So for your listeners who are interested in seeing the sort of stocks that we own, you can watch that till the cows come home.
1: Tim Gerard from Janice Henderson, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Uh, Gemma, thank you for the opportunity to uh, present Janice Henderson's uh, sort of the story behind the story of resources. It's been a fantastic meeting. Thank you
1: thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions. Please email us at at yourwealth@nab.com.au. We know you do, by the way. Uh, Certainly when we were talking about currency uh, subscriptions, we got tons of feedback from you guys wanting to sign up, which was awesome. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit
1: nab.com.au.